Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from our, your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Amen. You may be seated. All right, guys. Good morning. Welcome. Glad to see you this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church, if we haven't met yet. Um, we're great, grateful to uh, join with you this morning as we look at the scriptures. Uh, we have been walking through the book of Luke um, in a, a little bit of a different manner than uh, we typically do things around here. We've been uh, kind of skipping here and there around Luke. Um, and the reason that we're doing this uh, is kind of twofold. Number one, um, we've done uh, other Gospels before. We've done Mark um, fairly recently uh, in the last couple years here. Um, and so we didn't want to do an entire uh, other Gospel so close to that. But also, we wanted to pick up on uh, kind of the uniqueness of Luke. We wanted to pick up on how it's different than some of the other Gospels. Um, so if you're not familiar with the New Testament, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, three of those are called the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, they are very similar in the way that they tell the story of Jesus, um, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is kind of the outlier. John is a very unique voice uh, in the way that he writes and the way that he expresses things, and so he's just kind of out there on his own um, as a weirdo. But um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, but in Luke, we find a whole bunch of kind of extra content that Matthew and Mark don't include. Um, and this extra content in Luke specifically helps us to see that Jesus was uh, very intentional about the kinds of people that he spent time with, um, that he was very intentional about the words that he said to all of these different kinds of people. Um, and in particular, Luke is showing us again and again that the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that good news continues to go out to everyone that you think it shouldn't go to, right? So in the first century Jewish context, that went out to children and to lepers and to women, and to Samaritans, and to Gentiles. Um, and Jesus uh, was share, sharing this good news gospel um, with everyone who had ears to hear. And often, um, as Luke records, the people that you didn't think would listen are listening. And the people that you think are kind of displaying the type of conduct that is a listener of spiritual things, they're actually the ones that are deaf to it. Uh, and so Luke shows us this, this very strong juxtaposition of kind of those who pretend to be religious and that at their heart are cold and hard towards God. And those that don't appear externally to be religious are actually soft and welcoming uh, to the words of Jesus and are the kinds of people that he spends time with. Um, and so this, that's kind of been our journey over the last uh, several weeks. And we're nearing um, the end here. And today we actually have the moment when Jesus arrives 
um, at Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever taken a journey, um, if you've ever done, done a long car ride toward someplace, um, you know the feeling of growing anticipation at the arrival, right? Like when you first get on the road, you got like your, your, your travel soundtrack ready, you know, your playlist is all popped, you're all set, you got the gas tank full, the tires have been checked, the oil's been changed, the windshield is clean, everything's ready to go, you've got all your snacks, right? Like your healthy vitamin water drinks and your rice cakes and your veggies, I mean your Twizzlers, Amen, amen, and your Dr. Pepper, glory to Jesus. Um, so it all begins great, but then like several hours in, or if it's a really long trip, the day in, you're just like, when are we going to be there, right? And my very good friends are visiting from North Carolina today, and they've got their two kids, and I'm sure you guys haven't asked at all, Daddy, when are we going to get there, right? Like, that just doesn't happen. So I remember when I was 16, maybe 17 years old, I went with a, a youth group trip to New York City from Minneapolis. And so we hit the road, drove in a church van, glory to God, uh, all the way across the Midwest through the Upper East and then into New York City. And I, I, I had never laid eyes on New York City before in my entire life, um, other than in movies. Um, and so, man, I remember coming across the bridge I don't remember which bridge we hit, whether it was um, Queensboro or Brooklyn, I don't remember. But I do remember the feeling. I do remember seeing mountains of steel and just thinking, holy cow, that is insane. Like, how cool is this city? Just this eruption of anticipation in my heart and just this idea of, like, all the buildup was worth it because, holy cow, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. What is this edifice before me? Like just this grand moment of arrival, right? So you've, you've done this on road trips, whether it's uh, long or short. You get to the place and you're just like, yes, finally, it's all been worth it. I'm here, right? And we, we in Luke have been watching as Jesus' journey has been pointing towards Jerusalem, right? We've read time after time again that Jesus is intensely and specifically uh, headed toward Jerusalem, and here, finally, Jesus shows up in Luke chapter 19, and what does he do? He bawls his eyes out. He weeps with grief, right? Almost the exact opposite of my experience when I approach New York City or your experience at the end of that long road trip. Finally, oh, great relief. Jesus runs into this wall of emotion. This intense moment of sorrow hits him when he finally actually lays eyes on Jerusalem. Right Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has seen Jerusalem. We know from some of the other gospel writers he's been there before. John records a couple trips, right? Because we know Jesus is a, is a, is a, is a Jew who's uh, walking with many of the traditions of his people, and so he's going to Jerusalem for festivals at other times. But we know that this time is different because Jesus has said it's different, and because of the response of the arrival uh, of Jesus, he sees Jerusalem, and he weeps. He cries. And the reason that he cries is because he knows what's coming for Jerusalem. He wishes that what was coming for Jerusalem was peace, but that's not so. Uh, and so today we've got to unpack a little bit about what it is that Jesus is seeing here as he weeps over Jerusalem and what exactly that means for us, because we are not Jerusalem, okay? Some of these words that Jesus said, these kind of scary doom and gloom words that Jesus says about Jerusalem, they were said specifically about Jerusalem, okay? Um, 
but there's still a lot of weight here for us this morning as we look at, at these words. So I want to read these, uh, just the first few verses again here. I'm going to read verses 41 to 44 because we're going to concentrate on those. And then uh, we'll pray and dig in. So here they are, Luke 19, 41 to 44. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now are they, now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and moment where we intentionally gather to hear your words. Um, they are eternal, they are sufficient, they are real, and they are powerful, and we need them. Um, God, and even a, a group of words that were spoken about a city long, long ago, um, they, they mean something even for us today. We thank you that that's true, that through your living spirit in us, you can open our hearts and our eyes to see um, that your eternal word matters for us now. Um, so I pray, God, that you would, you would guide us through the history and, 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 and any of the kind of stuff that we just are prone to dismiss and that you would pull us into uh, understanding the heart of God in this, in this passage, that we would really see uh, the, the deep emotion of Jesus and that we would see that that emotion is a communication of the nature of God, um, that though you are sovereign, um, though you uh, perfectly and sufficiently and powerfully rule over every single event in all of human history, you are not calloused, you are not careless, you are not heartless as history unfolds. But in fact, you do weep over those, even those, who would reject you. And that, that's profound in its implications for us today. So I pray that you would allow us to get to that place, help my own words and my mind and my heart today uh, to turn from error and to uh, walk towards truth so that you might uh, point us all towards truth today in this beautiful moment. We love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So just to go back and, and kind of look at what has gone on, um, in Luke chapter 9, we first read of this kind of intentional setting out for Jerusalem. Um, so Luke 9.51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's speaking of Jesus. And so he, he, he had this... I mean, ever since the day he was born, there was a moment of destiny ahead of him, right? And we know in, in hindsight, because of what we have in the scriptures, we know that that day was his death, and that, that day even greater so was not just his death, but also his resurrection. And so Luke, very early in his record of Jesus' life, speaks of that day drawing near and how Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, right? So there's, there's an internal turning of the will uh, have you, that, that Jesus just, there's this iron set, I, I, nothing can deter me from the destiny that I've come for. That's just that kind of, that kind of set um, gate in Jesus' life. And so all these different things that are going on all along, Jesus continually is moving toward Jerusalem from that point forward. Luke 13, 22 mentions it away, uh, again where it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So every stop along the way did not pull Jesus away from his total mission, right? It was all a part of the mission. It's not that Jesus was 
just flippant in his approach to these other towns and villages. It's not that at all, but there was ultimately a great destination that Jesus had. So even though he's having all these different detours through these different towns and villages, there is a specific direction. We read in one point there's even a town that rejects Jesus. Uh, it's one of the first ventures he makes into Samaria. Uh, and the town rejects Jesus, and he, he kind of has to go, instead of going straight south, he has to go east a bit, right? And, and, and if we're watching the map of Jesus' journey, we're thinking, oh, bummer, he didn't get to go how he wanted, he had to skirt the different direction. And, and even that, you know, seemingly detour moment of his life was all according to the plan of God, and he still continued to move on to Jerusalem. And uh, just a couple weeks ago, we were in Luke 17, and we saw, like in verse 11, it says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And that's where we had the story of the ten lepers. One of them was a Samaritan. Um, he returned to worship at Jesus' feet, and uh, again, all the way on Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And last week, Luke 19, 1 through 10, um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and uh, he was in the town of Jericho. Jericho was a close neighbor to Jerusalem. Jesus still is continuing on toward Jerusalem, even, even as he moved through um, Jericho. Um, and so then you have the triumphal entry. We didn't cover the triumphal entry because everybody does. Um, all the Gospels cover that, right? So Jesus comes uh, toward Jerusalem, and he's in Bethany, um, and there's uh, a moment where he tells his disciples, hey, uh, go find a donkey. It's going to be tied to this tree. You're going to talk to the owner. You're going to tell him I need it, and blah, blah, blah. It's all going to work out. So sh sure enough, the disciples get a donkey, and Jesus comes riding in, a symbol that he's coming in peace, not in war. If he were coming in war, he would have been on a horse, but he was on a donkey. That was a symbol of peace, and so he was coming to Jerusalem, everybody starts waving palm branches and putting their jackets on the ground, and that's Palm Sunday, right? So that's kind of the, the grand entrance of Jesus, and then um, he also pulls back out, and he stays away from Jerusalem um, for the night, and then he comes back to the city. So everybody records the triumphant entry, and everybody records Jesus clearing the temple. Matthew, Mark, and John, they all record Jesus going into the temple and, you know, tossing the temple tables, cracking whips at people. Um, they're selling the goods for worship in the temple, right? And without preaching a whole big sermon on this, the, the point of that was that there were, there were these areas that only Gentiles could come toward the temple, right? So the temple is huge, it's glorious. Um, Solomon had built it, that had fallen down, and then Herod rebuilt the temple, kind of added to what was there, and it was just spectacular. And there was an area where if you weren't a Jew, you could still come and approach God. Um, but there was like this division where if you weren't a Jew, you couldn't go any further. Well, it was in this area where Gentiles could go that a bunch of Jewish people were setting up tables to sell goods for worship. And it was an interruption to the approach of foreigners to God. And that's what Jesus was so furious about. Jesus said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you guys have turned it into a place to make money for Jewish religious purposes, and that's why he was so furious. So worship isn't about you guys making money. Worship is about my presence being accessible to all people. You've missed the mark. That's why I'm so furious. Um, but what we get with these extra verses, 41, 41 through 44, is that before Jesus kind of loses it, <laughs> before his anger shows, it's, it's righteous anger, Right? We know Jesus has no sin, and so even his anger at the temple courts is not a sinful anger, it's a righteous anger. Before that moment, 
Jesus is heartbroken. Luke records for us, and he's the only one that records for us, that Jesus weeps when he comes near to Jerusalem. Now, we know from the beginning of Luke that Luke spent a lot of time doing interviews. Right? He was actually a doctor by trade, very well educated, very, very well in um, documenting and, and um, research and writing. And so it's interesting, somewhere along the way in the interviews that Luke is conducting, he's talking with them about the entrance to Jerusalem. You know, and I just, I'm kind of filling in the lines here, but I imagine he sits down with this person who's like, yeah, and I know when he came to Jerusalem, you know, that he was on the donkey, and he, and he went to, into the temple courts, and he got, he got pretty mad, and he was throwing the tables around and stuff like that, and is that kind of how you remember it? And the person, yeah, yeah, I remember the donkey, and... And yeah, that was really crazy. He, he quoted from the Old Testament and said, my house is to be a house of prayer. Yeah, well, is there, is there anything else you remember about that? You know what? There was, this, there was this one really interesting moment. Jesus stopped. He had this view over Jerusalem, and he, and he stopped, and he started to cry. It was, it was strange. There was so much going on, but Jesus suddenly was just stricken with this grief. He began to weep over Jerusalem. And I heard him talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. I heard him talk about a moment when Jerusalem was going to be warred against. And it, was, it wasn't like he was excited about it. He was grieved in his soul. There was something inside of him that was just so sad about what was going on. And he had said these words and then moved on, but they show so much to us about the heart of God. And we know that Jesus is the perfect image, the exact imprint of God's nature. Right? We know this from the apostles' writings later in the New Testament that we know about the character and the nature of God because of the person of Jesus. Right? Yes, we have words that tell us about the truth of God, but more than just simply words that tell us about the truth of God, we have words that paint the picture of a persona, and that persona represents exactly and perfectly who God is. And so in the movements of Jesus' life, we see the nuance of the character of God that even though there is a rejection of God that will happen at Jerusalem and that the result of that direction will be destruction for Jerusalem, it's always been that way. It was that way in the Old Testament. It was that way in Jesus' time. Even though that's true, there is a deep mourning in the heart of Jesus that reveals to us a greater reality about God and that there is also a deep grievance in his own heart at the destruction of anybody. At the rejection of Jesus, we find the grieved heart of God, not the calloused, hard, revengeful heart of God, right? This is really important for us to understand because we have this great, grand view of God that he is sovereign over all of human history, right? The scriptures paint this glorious picture of a God who's never surprised at the turning of the events in human history, whether it's a government rising and falling, whether it's an individual going into a pretty particular place, whether it's a family or a famine or a victory or a loss, God knows before anything happens exactly what's going to happen. We see that again here in the words of Jesus, but we must know behind all that all-knowing sovereign reality of God, there is a heart that beats for people to have peace with him. The yearning of God is not the destruction of humans, but the restoration of humans. It's exactly the reason that Jesus draws near to the very city that he's going to be killed in, 
right? If you have all knowledge about when your death is coming, right? This is one of the, the great uh, uh, space-time continuum difficulties of our time travel movies, right? If you know the moment when your death is coming, what do you do? You seek to avoid the death, right? I love time travel movies. They're so fun, but like inevitably we all die. You cannot avoid that moment. Jesus knew where his death was. He knew the day, the hour, the place, the method, the people, everything. And what does he do? He draws near to the place of his death. With what? A fist in the air and a furled eyebrow? Ready to pounce? No, with, with a broken heart and with tears. This is the soft heart of the ruler of the universe. We need to know in everything we face there is a soft-hearted ruler leading us there. In every moment. Right? Sometimes we look back and we just go, where? Where? Yeah, where were you? Right? Sometimes we look at right now and we go, where are you? What are you doing? All I feel is you being a jerk right now. If you knew about this and didn't stop it, you must be a giant mean guy. Some of us look at our future with just anxious anxiety, wondering, God, where are you going to be? Are you going to leave me? Can I make it through what's coming? We need to know the sovereign ruler of all of the events of human history, including your little life, is tenderhearted towards you. That is what Jesus displays in this moment. He displays his great love for people, even people who are going to reject him, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. John 11 tells us that Jesus wept when Lazarus was dead. You remember this? That's John 11:35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, by the way. There you go. You just memorized one. Jesus wept, John 11:35. But in John 11:36, the Jews see Jesus weep, and they see and they say, "See how he loved him." Right? They saw the tears in Jesus' eyes, and they knew that they were because of love. Again, in that situation, he knew Lazarus was about to come up out of the tomb, <laughs> but he wept. He wept at the loss of a friend. He wept at the brokenheartedness of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Like, just the tender-hearted nature of the one who knows the future. This is on display for us to understand that there is a deep grieving in the heart of God when it comes to those who will reject him. And listen, like Luke just pulls no punches here, right? We see Jesus weep, and then, and, then we, and then we read his words, right? We see the grief in Jesus' heart, and then we read the truth of what will happen. We see the tender-hearted nature of God, and then we see the, the ultimate revelation of his will that is to come and that cannot be stopped, right? Verses 43 and 44, for the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Right? These things paired next to each other seem so strikingly incompatible. Jesus weeping and grieving because of the rejection of peace and then the declaration of what is to come. And listen, every word of Jesus in this moment gets fulfilled about 40 years later. Every last word. We know without a shadow of a doubt that in 70 AD, under the rule of Emperor Titus, that the Roman army attacks Jerusalem, besieges the city, starves the people out, tears the temple down, and spreads Jewish people throughout the known world. Right? It's in our history books. It's, it's there. We know that this moment is fulfilled, that Jesus is not speaking what if, but he is speaking this will come to pass. And so as we look at that reality, it helps us to see a couple of things about the, the truth of God's sovereignty. Number one, we've already talked about this in great detail, that God is not hardened as he exercises his sovereign authority over the world. Number two, that God is not slow in returning to make all things new, but he is patiently working to bring many to repentance. And then number three, God knows what is coming, and it will all happen according to his plan and under his control. Okay, I just want to talk about these one at a time quickly before we get into a conversation about the peace of God. So number one, God is not hardened as he exercises sovereign authority over the world. Like I said, I've already spoken of this at length, but I want to look back at Ezekiel. So the book of Ezekiel is a, a, a foretelling of another conquering. Okay, so back up all the way, Old Testament, right? Moses leads people out of Egypt, they go out into the desert, they get into uh, Israel, or the, the Palestine, which becomes Israel, they, they walk across, God gives them victory over different people, different nations that are wicked and are, are, are spreading their malice throughout the world. God sets up a kingdom in Israel, Jerusalem becomes its capital, the kingdom ends up dividing in half, and it becomes kind of the place known as the, the home of God's people, and uh, they are supposed to, in that kingdom, uh, be a people who are living according to the precepts and the sovereignty and the, and the, the, the righteous and ruling reign of God, uh, but they keep not doing the things that God had called them to do. Um, things like executing justice, like being a place of, of safety for those who are seeking asylum, being a place of, 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 of sharing and caring and, and, and um, provision, uh, being a place where, where no person goes without home or without bread or without family, being a place that is uh, welcoming to those who are seeking peace. I mean, just all these things that are supposed to exist under God's rule and reign, and they don't. They don't exist. And so you get all these prophets that come against the kings, and they're like, you're, you, you know, you're opposing people, you're, you're oppressing people, you're, you're, you're worshiping false idols, you're, 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 you know, you're turning your families over into to evil practices. All these things happen, and, and there's a, a foretelling of of an exile that's to come. And Ezekiel is one of these prophets who's coming to Israel to tell them, listen, stop, stop doing what you're doing, otherwise it's going to go bad. Like, the kingdom's all going to fall, and we're all going to go into Babylon and be under the rule of a bad king. So stop, you know, and of course nobody stops, nobody listens, and, and this thing continues to unfold. But even in the midst of the unfolding of that period of time, we hear a communication about God's heart as he, as, as he is 
um, moving the people toward this inevitable future. So two verses in Ezekiel help us see the same thing. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Right? It's a rhetorical question where God's saying, do I like it when wicked people die? No, is the answer. I'm not happy at the death of the wicked. That is not, that is not my great pleasure. I wish that people would turn, that they would repent and live. He says it again in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God tells Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Right? Prophet after prophet after prophet comes to Israel, declares the same thing. Don't fall into this wicked pattern. Repent and follow after God. Do you think God is going to delight in your ruin? No, that is not the case. Right? This communication about God's will shows that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now we know because Scripture is clear that God indeed will punish sin and he will vindicate his holiness. But at the very same time, God feels sorrow over the punishment and death of people who are made in his image. Right? It is a requirement of God's perfect holiness that sin be judged. Because sin is a violation of his will, it is a breaking of his image, it is a ruining of relationship and other individuals, it is a slaughtering of the things that God has set up for life and holiness, and so the perfect holiness of God cannot abide with people that continually pursue the breaking of all the good things that he's given. That is why judgment of sin has to happen, and it is also why judgment of sin is a manifestation of the love of God. Right? When you think about the people in your life that you love and you watch them pursue destructive things, if you truly love the person that is pursuing those destructive things, you will seek to remove those destructive things from their life. Will you not? Right? You haven't deeply and truly loved somebody unless you've tried to interrupt them from destruction, unless you've tried to insert yourself into their life where you see them heading off a cliff, stand in the way and say, no, no, cliff behind, go that way, right? I mean, in TV, we have, you know, the mocking moment where the friends or whoever has the intervention, right? But those things are real, and love propels us toward them toward genuine intervention, to do whatever it takes to interrupt destruction in the life of someone that we love. And so God, in looking at the world, the, the life of what he loves, us, his creation, he must put an end to the things that are destructive, the things that destroy, right? And so again and again, he calls to us, turn away. Turn away, turn away, turn away. I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I love you, turn away. It's going to kill you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to ruin you. Turn away. And we, we don't like this. Right? We, 
Stop telling me what to do. Stop telling me what to do. You do you, man. I'll do me. You're going to die. Stop telling me what to do. I'll be me. You just take care of you. You're ruining your marriage. Shut up. Stop telling me what to do. I'll do me. You do you. Mind your own business. If you really love me, you would just accept me as I am. You are going to end up broke and homeless and ruined. Stop doing what you're doing. Shut up. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I'm the captain of my own destiny. How dare you interrupt my life? I love you. You're hurting people. Don't tell me what to do. Again and again and again, in God's grace, in his mercy, he wants to interrupt your destruction. This is hard. It's really hard. Most of us have been taught for most of our life that we're independent, that what we do doesn't affect others, and that we have to make the best decision for ourselves and not care about anybody else, right? A lot of times it doesn't come exactly like that, but that's the spirit of the age, right? Just the other night I was having a conversation with somebody about my marriage, and I told them something about something that's hurting me, and they said, who's, who's the primary concern in that statement? I was like, you're a jerk. I hate that. <laughs> Bad question, because I'm the primary concern in that statement. I don't want you to talk to me like that. I don't want you to point out my selfishness in my marriage. I'm busy pointing out my wife's selfishness in my marriage. How dare you interrupt me by telling me about mine? Shut up. (laughs) I didn't want to hear it. Right? Who are you primarily concerned about, Derek? Oh, my God. Myself. Unbelievable. Week after week after week. God have mercy. So I love you. You need to repent. There's something in your life that you think you deserve. And it's killing you. And you need to repent. Lovingly, the Lord comes to us in these moments and says, turn away. You're going down the path of destruction. I want to lead you to life. Okay? So we know that we get warning. We see that in this passage. And we also see in this passage a turning that is happening. Now, there's a lot of history here, but what's happening at the rejection of Jesus in Jerusalem is that there's a closing that's happening for Israel so that an opening might happen for the Gentiles. Okay? There's a closing that's happening for Israel so that an opening can happen for the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. This means that history changed at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, okay, where suddenly there was a way for all of the kinds of the people of the world to come and have peace with God. For people who did not have the sacrifices, who did not have the covenants, who did not have the prophets, right? Those are not our prophets, right? Those were Jewish prophets. But because of Jesus, now they're ours. (laughs) We get pulled into this great family that God promised he was going to bring. He promised it to Abraham. 
He said, as sure as the, the, the sand flakes are on Clearwater Beach, that's how many, uh, you know, multitudes are going to be in your family, Abraham. That, that truth, at this moment, we're seeing the door open for that. This is a historical change where finally, after years and years and years of God offering his peace to Israel, finally, Jesus says, the visitation was here and you shut the door, right? That closing was the beginning of things opening up for all the Gentile world, right? Luke wrote the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. When you turn the page from Luke to Acts, you see this historical shift. You see the gospel begin to spread out to all of the nations, right? You see leaders being sent to all these other cities to go start churches. You see, um, you see the, the apostle Paul making three different missionary journeys up to Asia and then over to Europe. I mean, it's like spreading the gospel all over the place because finally God had said, this is the way. This is the way the world will have peace through Christ and his death and resurrection. Finally and ultimately, everything's been pointing to this, and this is the way. So the door closes for Israel here, but the door opens for all of the Gentiles, right? And it seems like now for us, looking back, we're like, God, what, what is taking you so long? Why is this, this bad stuff keeping, like, why does that all keep going on? And it, it seems like you never really finally finish the work, right? And we know from other places in the New Testament that God is patiently working toward the greater fulfillment of all the history that he proclaimed, right? God is working patiently toward a great intaking of many who would believe, many who, who will believe. Peter mentions this, 2 Peter 3, 9. Peter's one of Jesus' closest disciples. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, Right? Why is this taking so long, Jesus? Because so many have not yet heard. So many have not yet seen. So many do not yet know. Right? There are many yet to come to repentance. It's the only reason why Jesus has not returned. Because there are still many to come. And so Jesus shows us in this moment a giant historical shift that for years and years and years God was patiently abiding Israel until finally a door closed. Well, guess what? The same thing is happening now. God is patiently abiding the evils of this world so that the door can stay open so that many can believe, but one day finally a door will close. One day finally all of history is going to be wrapped up. One day finally God is going to say enough with tears in his eyes, with a breaking heart for those who have rejected him, God will say, enough evil. It's over. Enough disease. It's ending. Enough death. I am the resurrection and the life, and everything is going to be made new. Right? This moment of history points us to another moment of history. The destruction of Jerusalem talks to us about a greater destruction of all of the empires of the universe that would put themselves arrogantly up against the rule and the reign of God, right? The country you live in, countries all over this world, do that very thing. Set themselves up as independent and authoritative, apart from and separate from God, and God one day will finally say, enough of the evil. No more. No more loss, no more sickness, no more poverty, no more death. No more evil, no more murder, no more rape, no more any of it. It's all, it's done. One day, finally, 
God will say enough. And he knows when that day is coming. That's the third thing that this passage points us to, that God knows what is coming, and it will all happen according to his plan and under his control. So like I said, we know that in AD 70, the Roman army invaded, conquered, sacked Jerusalem, and the world changed. The world changed utterly in that moment. So yet another day is coming. I don't know what it's going to look like. Revelation's really confusing. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know it's going to be unmistakable. Right? I know it's going to be unmistakable. And for those who fear God, for those who look to God as king and as, as glorious, there will be tears of joy, a great rejoicing. Finally. Right? I had lunch with Jason this week. We sat down, we were talking about some things. We just literally looked at each other and said, Jason looked at his watch, like, when are you coming back? Like just deep internal longing for the ultimate final return of Jesus, right? So that's one crowd. There's just going to be, yes, finally. Finally, the real king is reigning. Ah, finally, my own indwelling sin is going to be gone. Yes. Finally, true union with my, my maker, right? And then there's going to be another crowd. And Jesus, with excruciating detail, points out this crowd's going to cry for rocks to fall on them. This crowd's going to be running for caves, right? This crowd's going to be filled with people that are terrifyingly regretful over their lives, right? And that's not to the delight of God. We need to know he's done everything he can to offer every opportunity. And when ultimately rejection happens, it's grievous to the heart of God. It's grievous to the heart of God. And so we need to know, just like those words were fulfilled in AD 70, we know the rest of the words will truly be fulfilled. And better than knowing just that the words are going to be fulfilled, we know the one who's in control of everything, who's going to see them to their finish line. And we can trust him. We can trust that even the bad is working according to his greater purposes, that even the confusion is leading towards a final solution. Right? That, that all of the lostness and all of the, the wondering and all of the confounding that goes on, there will be a moment of unfolding where we'll finally go, aha, aha, right? For some of us, we get that in this life, right? We get the whole, I look back 10 years ago and I see that moment and I go, oh, that's what that was for, right? Oh, that's what God was doing. You know, maybe it's 15 years, maybe it's 20 years. If we live long enough, maybe it's 50 years. We look back and we go, oh, that's what God was doing. God put me on what I thought was a detour in this moment, but man, it saved my life. It saved my marriage. It saved my children. It saved other people. It moved me to this job. It moved me to this city. It moved me to this neighborhood. It moved me into this relationship. It, like, wow. God is good overall, right? Some of us will get to see that. Hopefully all of us in some small ways, right? But one day we'll finally see perfectly. We'll look back at all of our life and all of human history and we'll go, oh, okay, yeah. I get it. I get it now. God has reigned and ruled supremely over all of this. I can trust him. This also leads us to understand that we know the future. If Jesus has said it, it's a guarantee. He will come and wipe away every tear. He will come and end death. He will come and sorrow will cease. He will come and confusion will end. 
He will come and evil will be gone. He will come and your own sin will be completely washed away. Not an inkling of wrongdoing in your life again. He will come and you will see him and you will worship at his feet. Be the kind of person who worships with glad tears, not with fear and regret. Because listen, even the ones hiding in caves, even the ones that are terrified, wanting rocks to fall on them, they're going to bow their knee and they're going to say, yeah, you were God. And it's going to be too late. Just like it was for many in Jerusalem. Right? Now the reason this is not solely a doomsday message is because of what Jesus says in verse 42. Jesus says, would that you have known on this day the things that make for peace. His tears are because Jerusalem does not know peace. And he wants them to know peace. He says in verse 44, you didn't know the hour of your visitation. He's longing that people in Jerusalem would wake up to what true peace is. That, that they would understand that, that his coming is the ultimate ushering in of real peace. Right? We've talked about this before. That the, the misperception of these people and their Messiah was that he was going to bring them earthly peace. That's what they thought Messiah was for. They thought Messiah was to come and to reign as an earthly king on an earthly throne over an earthly kingdom. And they were wrong. Jesus was a heavenly king coming to sit on a heavenly throne to rule over a heavenly kingdom, one that would never pass away, one that was over all things, right? Not limited to geography and time. Right? And so at the same moment, we need to look at the reality that we too look to Jesus and say, where's my earthly king? Where's the earthly throne? Where's the earthly kingdom? And we get these mixed messages because of everything in our world that is promising an earthly something, an earthly peace, an earthly king, an earthly reign, and we can... can uh, blah, we mix that up with Jesus and we think Jesus is promising that too. So suddenly we hear this communication that we need to be great in some earthly way and that Jesus then wants to make us great in that earthly way too and that's where we'll get true peace. Right? Like that, that career, that's your peace. We, we take that worldly communication, we attach it to Jesus and we say, Jesus bring me peace in my career and we pursue it. I mean, sometimes we do great at it, sure, but sometimes we ruin everything. Because we think, if I just do this thing, then I'll finally have peace in my soul. And we reject every other offer of peace, including Jesus. Right? We do that with our career. We do that, guys, I do that with, with freaking being liked, man. It's ridiculous. Ah, if everyone likes me, then I'll be at peace. What? That is a miserable existence. Number one, that's impossible. Number two, even if it happened, they're just freaking humans. Not you, me, we. What? Like, there's no real peace there, right? That targeted dollar amount, that specific age for retirement, that relationship that you're throwing up on a pedestal above everything else, 
we do it, and it's, it's just, it's so nuanced. We just think, God, would you, you know, we watch our prayers, and Lord, would you help me find this, and would you help me find that? And all along, Jesus stands weeping at this, the, the doorway of Jerusalem, just, if you really knew what peace was, you wouldn't reject me. You would stop looking at these things. You would stop looking to an earthly kingdom to bring you peace. Like, I love you and I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but stop looking to America for peace. I'm an American, I love my country, but it is not going to bring me peace. No matter what, right? I don't care. It's not going to happen. Jesus alone will bring me peace. If I can just do this job and get this recognition and get those accolades, then I'll have peace. No, you won't. Jesus offers true peace. And in the New Testament, we see greeting after greeting after greeting from Paul and the other apostles where they say grace to you and peace through Jesus Christ. Peace. Again and again, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he bursts in the room, the disciples are hanging out, and he's like, peace. <laughs> right? And this isn't hippie Jesus. This is real peace, Jesus. Shalom, true wholeness to your soul is here because of me, is what he kept on saying. Peace be with you. This was a common greeting in many different historical periods of the church. Peace be with you. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Peace in Christ Jesus. Right? Again and again, true peace. Don't find it in your country. Don't find it in your career. Don't find it in your relationship. Don't find it in your eventually one day. That thing will happen. Find it in Jesus now. All of the New Testament that's written is written to a scattered people. Many who had letters written to them by the Apostle Paul and Peter and read the words, peace be with you, they were people who watched Jerusalem get sacked. They watched the temple burning they were chained up and brought to foreign lands some of them hauled all the way to Rome thrown into a basement under the Colosseum threw costumes on them and paint so they could be thrown out to eat, be eaten by lions peace to those people right like when we think peace it's kind of tainted because guess what comparatively we've got peace but really, you look at our souls, you look at all the data on depression and suicide, opiates. Guys, we're in a whole new world. We're in a whole new world of knowing that all of the promises of peace are short. They don't deliver. We know it now. <laughs> but this week... Like me, you will pursue peace somewhere other than Jesus. I urge you to take the peace that he offers. What is the peace that he offers? Forgiveness, wholeness, union with God, your creator, walking in step with the spirit, saying no to ungodliness, yes to his righteous rule in our lives to love God above others, to love others above self, to have true peace.
and to trust that in all of the situations, whether they feel good or not, whether they're fleeting or they last a while, whether it seems like they never go away, whether it's economic or relational or political or whatever, that all of those other things will fall short. But Jesus alone gives peace. In Philippians 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The only way we can live into the reality of that is when we let go of all the false, false offerings of peace and we take the one true offer. Peace with God through Christ. So that in all circumstances and situations, I can actually be thankful and reasonable and, and put off anxiety and know God's peace. And know God's peace. Listen, some of us, we just need to repent. We need to repent of pursuing false peace. Okay? Some of it, it's, it's just very blatant and outright sin. And we keep going to it because it's comfortable, because we like it, because it meets our need, because there's pleasure there or some sort of short-lived peace or whatever. And we need to just call it what it is today and say, Jesus, I'm walking to other things than you for peace. And it's starting to hurt me. It's hurting people I know. It's hurting my future. It's, it's, it's hurting Right? So graciously the prophet has come to you today and has said, turn away. Turn away from false peace and receive true peace in Christ Jesus. Right? Listen, the offer is not over as of yet. The offer of peace still stands. So if you need to repent of sin and come and acknowledge, God, I've rebelled and run away from you, the door is still right now wide open for you. What do you have to do to come? What changes do you have? No, just come. Just like we saw in Zacchaeus last week, just come, right? Do I have to tidy up and get all nice and neat and then walk up to climb a tree in desperation and run to Jesus? Well, run to the tree. Anyway, come to Jesus first. Just come to him humbly and just say, Jesus, I, I know I'm looking this all up, man. I just need peace. I need it with you first, right? He is here to give it. Graciously, compassionately, with a tender heart towards you, he longs to give you true peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the real peace of God. And we know that as Jesus sits on the threshold of Jerusalem, that he is looking forward toward a death, his death, a brutal death, on a Roman tool of torture, for him, there was no peace in Jerusalem because he was bringing the true peace to us. And so we know that that offer of peace stands for us today. That as long as we draw breath, we can turn to you. And that God, the offer of peace is not contingent upon anything in our lives, getting it right or wrong or how far bad we've gotten or how far lost we've found ourselves 
or how good we are at religious games or it, all of that stuff, would you just wash it away? Would you bring us true peace that we might see the tender heart of our Creator who is lovingly calling us to Himself to turn away from these false offerings of peace and to come to you and find real rest for our souls? God, I need it. I need it. God, I, if I'm honest, I look at some of my history and I say, where were you? And I look towards some of my future with insane anxiety and I say, God, where are you leading me? In the middle of these moments, God, would you bring us to real peace, knowing that you are with us, that like Psalm 23 said, that your rod and your staff, they comfort us, that we can literally walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we do not need to fear evil because you are with us. That is peace. That we could face all of the things that the disciples faced, even death. <laughs> that we could face all of the things that the early church faced, even persecution, real physical persecution. We could face it all and we could have peace because of Jesus. And so now, God, in a land of what seems like peace, <laughs> would you help us to see, God, how much just foolishness we're prone to turning to? Would you correct our course, turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we could look full on his wonderful face, that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, we need it. Thank you, Jesus, for giving it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.